Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nika Spalding and we are going to open up 1 John chapter 5 today. And so we're going to look at the first half of 1 John chapter 5, which will be verses 1 through 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So let's jump right in. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, We've said it from the beginning, and I think um, hopefully by now, as we're getting ready to wrap up this book, which is which is really fun, as we're seeing the the full full letter, full homily, full everything of First John is coming around to the end. But I made the argument early on that this is like a homily, which is just our fancy word for sermon, and. If it is a homily, then it ends like so many pastors in their homilies, which is, I don't know if y'all know this, but this is how most pastors do a homily. They have an introduction, they have their three points, and then at the end, they remind you of what their three points were, and then they have a, a fun little like ending, like some little so what, some little application. And for John, that's a lot of what he's doing here. So, you know, he introduces the book, reminding the people of who they are who he is, and and starting then he starts to unpack these issues that are going on in the church with the false teachers, and he attacks them three different ways. And he attacks them through morality, he attacks, attacks them through the social test, and then he attacks them through the doctrinal. And so it is very fitting that as we get to the end of this book, that John would tie a nice little neat bow around these things and bring these three things back together. And so that's what you you really see in these first few verses here, verses one through five. He is bringing us back and you'll see these same themes of, okay, you want to know what true faith is, right? He starts with this idea of faith in this in here, and he's talking about, okay, faith is loving the Father. Loving the Father means loving the children. Loving the children means, and on and on and on. And so he's taking his last, you know, like he's circling one more time this idea of the moral, social, and doctrinal elements of our faith. And what I want, I've already said this before, but I think it's really important and bears repeating, it's, it's worth repeating here, is that John though he has tackled them individually at times in his letter, right? So if you were to, uh, you know, drop down on just one passage of First John, there might be a place where it's just talking about the morality. If you love God, you obey God. You, if you love God, you obey God. Obedience to God is loving God. And if you were to drop down in there and and just microscope in on that, 
then you would say, look, the the beginning and end of the Christian faith is all about obedience. It's just obedience. That's all it is. It's how well do you obey God? And that would be incomplete, right? We've talked about this before. Like the reason why John is now coming back in and taking the moral obedience, the social loving of your brother and the doctrinal belief of certain truth claims that Christianity makes upon us is because they are inseparable. That an immature believer would take one and elevate it to the degree above the others. And we've all met people like that. And I don't, I don't like, like the so what at the end of this isn't going to be like, so think of somebody dysfunctional and how they only think of one. Like, that's not what I'm trying to get at here. What I'm trying to get at is there is a holistic giving of your life to God when you say, I believe. Because when you say, I believe, in essence, you say, I do, and you wedge yourself to a God who cannot who cannot betray you, who cannot leave you, he will never leave you. And so part of that union with God, it is, think about it, this is a, we, we sometimes use earthly language to talk about our relationship with God, but the reality is, is we are talking about a cosmic ruling, almighty, alpha and omega, before the world existed, God was. All the like, infinitudes of speech that I could offer to God. That's the relation. We have a relationship with that God. So why would we expect it to just be our thoughts, the doctrinal? Or why would we expect it to be just our our service to others, the social? How well do you love people? Like, why would we not expect that God makes demands on our minds, our hearts, our souls, our strengths, our everything? Like, God makes a demand upon our entire life because every fiber in our being, every quark, every atom, every element, everything, everything that makes humanity humanity is made in the image of God. And we are to be made more like him in greater degrees of glory all the time. So of course, our faith is not so one dimensional. And so lest you think, like, you know, if you were to preach through First John, you're like, I'm only going to talk about the moral components, you, it would be incomplete. And this is John's way of bringing all of three, all, th- all three of these things and having them collide into each other and saying, this, hey, children, this is what it means. This is what it means to be the people of God, that you would obey him, that you would love his children, your brothers and sisters. And that you would believe these truth claims that God has put before us, such as the life, death, and resurrection of his son, such as the triune nature of the Trinity, such as there is no way to the Father except through the Son, these truth claims that we cannot just ignore if we say we're Christians. And so I love that John brings them all back together because I don't, I think in order to efficiently teach them to excellently teach them he's going to pull them apart for the sake of microscoping but right here what we see is he telescopes back out he just you know he turns that knob and pulls us back out so we see the big picture and in the big picture it stands that we are to love God by obeying God. And if we love God by obeying God, that will result in the love of our neighbor. And if we love our neighbor and we love God, then we have no reason to doubt the truth claims that he's put before us. It would be a very odd Christian to say, oh, I love God. I just think he's full of crap, right? No, no, no. Your mind, your heart, your body, your soul, everything is is being brought into a relationship with God. 
And so that's what he demands of us is nothing less than that. And so I love that. And so then he, as John often does, is he is almost begging us to consider these truth claims. Because remember, the reason why he writes this letter is he's writing it so that we will have belief in that we have eternal life. He's reminding us of assurance of salvation. And so one of the ways that in the ancient world, so the idea of a witness is so important, right? And so even in the Jewish law code, you have to have two or three witnesses for your case to have good standing. And we see this in Deuteronomy 19.15. We see this in other places where having witnesses to an event adds validity to that event. We've talked about that before. And John likes using witnesses. Like he he likes reminding people that there are witnesses to what he has talked about. It's why he tells them in the beginning, hey, we saw, we were with Jesus, all these things. And so now he's reminding them, hey, listen, I've already told you that the apostles, us men, have borne witness to these things, but now John is going to ratchet it up a notch, and now he's introducing three new witnesses that he hasn't really referenced before, and these witnesses come from God. And so this is what he's doing. He's, he's tied up his message. Hey, your entire life, your soul, everything is being demanded of you in the relationship with God. And hey, lest you think that we apostles are confused by this because we are human. Let me show you the three witnesses that I'm asking you to consider. And so he talks about the witnesses being the water, the blood, and the spirit. And so the last one's really easy. He's talking about capital S, Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. The Spirit's role is to, in the lives of believers, testify to us about the work of Jesus. The Spirit is our guide. He is our comforter. He is our teacher. He is the one indwelling us and, and leading us on the path everlasting. It's an incredible thing. So that's one really strong witness. And since he's God and God is the truth, which is what it says in the Spirit is the truth, we should be able to trust God. You only need one witness. But John being sensitive, Go ahead, and he gives you two two more. And so the big question is, what does it mean that the water and the blood are also witnesses? And so people have thought this meant a couple of different things. Um, I believe it was Augustine who thought this is a reference to, in John's gospel, if you remember back in John's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, uh, John tells the story of where one of the one of the guards stabs him in the side and out comes water and blood. Um which is an interesting theory, but the way John's language is used in this passage, he says that through the water and through the blood. And so like blood, sorry, uh, that's a throwback. Anyways, uh, so it's weird language for him to use that preposition to say through the water and through the blood if he's referencing that event, because that wasn't really, those things didn't go, like Jesus didn't go through them. Those things came out of him. Um, And it's kind of a, an obscure reference. And so with all due respect to Augustine and others who think that, um, I tend to side with the commentators who think that the water refers to Jesus's birth um, and blood refers to his crucifixion. And so what John is most likely doing here is he's saying, listen, the witness to this testimony is the birth of Jesus, which people have witnessed and talked about, right? I mean, there are people who have been talking about his birth since he was born because it was quite a scandalous situation having a, a virgin mother. I almost said virginal mother. is I don't know if virginal is a word. I know it's not an airline. So anyways, yeah, virgin birth. It's scandalous. They, a lot of people just didn't believe his mom. Like they thought, you know, she was just a, 
you know how small towns are, right? I mean, the rumor mill just gets going, and that's most likely what happened in Jesus' life. It's interesting because even when Jesus is referenced throughout the gospel, sometimes they're like, oh, that boy, the, the son of Mary, like they reference his mom, which for most people in the ancient world, they reference your dad, right? You're the son of Joseph. You're the son of the daughter of, and they usually reference your dad. That's how lineage is passed down. It's this Potter familia, this father family lineage. And so a lot of scholars believe that the reason why they keep referencing Jesus as the as the son of Mary is because people are like, mm, you know that story, like wink, wink, hush, hush, that story where she claims she had never lay with a man, but come on. And so Jesus, Jesus' baptism is well attributed, as well as his death. People saw him die. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, people, John being one of them, you know, but other people saw his death. And what John is getting at is Jesus' birth, Jesus' crucifixion, and the spirit who testifies about these things are the three witnesses that are now bearing testimony to these people in Ephesus. And so it's a really beautiful thing because it's as if God is saying, look, you are, you guys don't just have to believe the testimony of John. You can believe the testimony of God, which if you're keeping score, God actually ranks higher than John in terms of whose testimony is most valuable. I know it's crazy how God would be more valuable than a human, but that's just how the the cookie crumbles. And so this is what John is saying is, hey, I've already, t- I've bared witness as a man and other disciples have bared witness. And you've heard these things from other teachers, but God himself is bearing witness about himself. Like the spirit bears witness to the things of Jesus's life. And so this is a great comfort to the believers then and really to us believers now that doubt is something that many of us wrestle with, some of us more than others. I mean, some of us going, man, I'm, I'm betting my life on this, but there are days that I wake up and I'm like, God, are you there? Or is this just some crazy myth that we all have fallen for because it makes us feel better, right? Like that's sort of the like new atheistic presumption about some things is like, this is just a really good mythical story. And hey, if it makes you feel good, that might explain why you believe it, but but none of it's true. And yet, here's John saying, hey, the events that have been attested by witnesses of his baptism, his crucifixion, and of course, his resurrection being part of that, and then the Spirit testifies. And so this is a gift to us that I think God understands our frailty. And even in the midst of our frailty, he still decides to take up residence in us. That the Spirit would still say, hey, listen, I know that you guys are feeble and weak and you make for really crummy homes sometimes. And yet that's how much we value you, that we are with you always, even at your worst moment. And one of the gifts that I give you by dwelling in you is reminding you and reassuring you of the things that you have heard and believed. What a beautiful gift that God would give us in sending his Spirit. So last little bit, the very last verse here um, is, I just love this. He says, whoever has the son has life. And then, of course, he goes on and uses the opposite of that. But whoever does not have the son does not have life. And this is what I want to, all, all of this book, all of John is building to one thing. He's trying to make the argument. And that is 
believe what you've been told, trust in what you've been told, trust in these, these sort of litmus, like this is how you can discern false teachers from true teachers. And this is how discerning that can give you confidence in the hope that you have in the salvation that you believe in. And then this, this little phrase, a small little phrase that you, you know, like whoever has the son has life. It might, maybe it doesn't seem that important to you, but if you think about what it means, what John is building up toward is a, is a understanding of salvation. And what John understood that I think sometimes we don't always understand because our language sometimes reveals to us what we think salvation is, is that so many times we talk about salvation as being saved from something, right? We say things like you're saved from your sins or you're saved from hell. And the reality is, is that is a very incomplete, shallow understanding of salvation. We're not saved from things. I mean, yes, we are. But more importantly, way more importantly, is we are saved into a relationship with our Savior. We are saved into a relationship with the Trinity by being saved into the relationship we have with union with Jesus Christ. When you have a relationship, it's why we know we have eternal life because we are saved into a relationship that cannot be broken with a son who is eternal. He is the one that vanquished our final enemy, which is death, which is how we know we have eternal life is that we're saved into a relationship with the one who has no beginning and no end. That's some mind-blowing stuff. That's some like, Double click, push pause, hold up, wait a minute, what type stuff? I mean, think about that. And so this is what John's John's trying to build this case with these people. And in this case, if you're not careful, you think like, okay, I'm going to believe these things. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to love these things. I'm going to whatever, whatever. And then he's built and he's like, by the way, if you have the sun, you have everything. If you have, so, so. Friends, this is the this is very profound truth. This is what I want to tell you. If you're rattled in this world, if you have doubt, if you have been taught something new and it's disorienting and you feel like you're on a boat and you're rocking and you've got a little bit of vomit building in your gut because you're like, I, I am getting really seasick here because things under my feet are really moving here. This is what John is saying is grab Jesus. Because if you have Jesus, the one true son of God, Jesus, then you have eternal life. If you will grab the son, you will have everything. And that's the so what I want to build from this is yes, all of Christianity demands it demands nothing less than our our obedience, our love, and our belief system. Like those things are true that John's talking about. And we have witnesses that are testifying to these things. But I know that so many people right now are living in a really disoriented way. That so many of us are deconstructing maybe the beliefs that we heard when we were children. And we're not sure where to go. And maybe the Jesus that that you thought you knew, you're now learning a different version of him. Maybe he used to be one way and now you're going, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me he's not a white guy with blue eyes and brown hair, that he's a Jewish man, that he was an ancient Palestinian Jewish man that bears, like he has demands on my life that I didn't understand. And I understand that sometimes this Christian life can be incredibly disorienting. And people teach you things that you're not sure about. 
and the boat gets rocked. And what I would say in that moment is you find your Savior and you cling to him. Because you're not saved from things. You're saved into a relationship with him. So hold on to him. And remember, he's going to hold you back. He's going to squeeze tighter than you do. He's going to keep squeezing even when you let go. And so let that comfort you in your seasons of disorientation and deconstruction and confusion. And then even more so, if you're just on a really good boat cruise with your Lord and Savior, then sit, hold his hand, talk about what it is that you want to talk about with your Savior, but know that he is good and that he loves you. And there are witnesses to his death and resurrection so that we can cling to him and know that eternal life is ours at the end of that. All right, friends, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God who is squeezing you tight is crazy about you. Peace out.